0: what I feel when I arrive at a stadium or an arena is that music and culture are camping out at a sports environment. And the sports environment itself, the sport is camping out really an industrialized kind of advertising environment, I would say. So it's a layer on a layer on a layer of, of you know, feeling like you're kind of peripheral to what the building is really being used for. But that's our skill. That's our craft is we have to really make ourselves felt for the time that we're in the space.
1: Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. My guest today synthesizes various disciplines of art and design, theater, sculpture, video, storytelling, fashion, and of course, music, into a visionary body of work that's truly unique and unparalleled today. S. Devlin. To call the British creative, S is short for Esmeralda, by the way, a stage or set designer would feel reductive. But in essence, that's what she is. S started her career in theater, but a chance request to create something special for the band Wire in 2003, which we'll speak about, set off her career into a new dimension of creativity. And a later request from Kanye West hurtled her studio onto a whole new level. Since then, she's worked with everyone from Dr. Dre, Adele, Miley Cyrus, Lady Gaga, and of course, the queen herself, Beyoncé, while going back and forth between the realms of theater, opera, and music. And she's done projects on a global level, one could say, like the Super Bowl halftime show and the closing ceremonies for the 2012 Summer Olympics. She's created a considerable number of fashion runways, too. For Yves Saint Laurent's Spring Summer Men's Show, she presented a rotating ring of light, that seemed to float on a pool of water. For Dior in 2022, she created a series of fantasy landscapes. One, a French garden of roses, the other, a desert landscape of oversized cacti. And she doesn't shy away from technology either. Instead, she makes it central to her work. This September, she created the inaugural event for the much-hyped Sphere in Las Vegas for a U2 concert. Instead of just plastering colors and photos of rock stars all over the place, she created a video installation that takes concert goers through a swirling vortex of illustrations of endangered species native to Nevada. If there's a science to the art of spectacle, S. Devlin is the field's Alberta Einstein. Her latest triumph elevates the solo exhibition. Now open at the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum in New York, an atlas of S. Devlin is like an Alice of Wonderland experience where you seemingly enter her sketchbook. And get a glimpse into her process, her maquettes, sketches, and even college-era drawings. It's her first monographic museum show to date, and even if you can't attend, the accompanying book by Thames & Hudson is a must-own, itself a work of art with hundreds of pages of cutouts and other delightful publishing tricks. I caught up with the always engaging Estevlin from her home in London to talk about her transition to theatre design and later music, how she creates such incredibly inventive productions, and most importantly, what is Beyonce like? I'm such a huge admirer of your work. And the more that I look through the book and the more pieces that I see, the more questions that I have and the more stories that I want to hear. But I would love to start with your own personal story, kind of going back to the beginning. Um, I believe you're from the south coast uh, uh, of England. And I was wondering what life was like growing up for you.
0: Well, actually, I was born in suburbia, deepest suburbia, in a place called Kingston-upon-Thames in Surrey. It doesn't get much more suburban than that. And my parents went on a romantic weekend break to a very cute little town on Mm. the south coast of England called Rye. And such is the nature of my parents' imaginations that when they saw a house for sale um, on their little weekend break, they bought it. Um, and, you know, the finances had to catch up. It was hard to sell the house in suburbia, but they did. And we moved to this small Sussex town when I was six. Okay. Um, and it was by the sea and we would go to the beach Every day after school, there were four of us, two boys, two girls, I'm the second. And we would go to Camber Sands, which is Britain's kind of big stretch of sand beach on the south coast, and another beach called Winchelsea, which is Pebbly. And that was our days in the, in the summer through to the autumn. And the street we lived on was a hill. It was called Mermaid Street. And the house that we grew up in had been inhabited by a writer called Conrad Conrad Akin whose daughter Joan Akin then lived in the house and wrote stories about the house. Mm. So we quite quickly got the idea that buildings could tell stories and coupled with that was this model of our town which was next door to our house in a small kind of shack and people would come and visit and the model which had been made by a retired um, engineer and a school teacher was a perfect scale model replica with each little building um, speaking. Hmm. So this further um, accentuated the idea in our minds, because when you're six years old, you're drawing conclusions in your world about what things do and how things work. And to us, it was obvious that buildings spoke and they told stories because a little sonnet lumiere would happen. And we'd go visit it very regularly because at the time my parents were inviting their friends down from London to the countryside for the weekend, and they would always say, come on, look at the 20 minutes on Lumia, We'd all go down. So I got into a kind of ritual of that, and there was church going. We would go to church on Sunday, Catholic church. Me and my sister were the altar girls. We had these two little bells, and we would have to go ping on a certain cue. So we got the rhythm of cues.
1: Were you good at it?
0: Oh, we were bang on. You know, it was all in Latin. It was all Kyrie, Eleison, Credo, and Unum Deum. But we didn't really know what it meant, except we slightly did because it was in red and black on the paper. So even though we couldn't speak Latin, we could see the red text and the black text. And so we had that from an early age. Mm. Um, And then we had a sort of tension because my mum, who came from a Welsh Methodist church, always thought the singing in the Catholic church was crap. So we'd have like this rather serious ceremony, but with my mum going, oh, that's rubbish, you know. So it was quite a fun tension. Um, and then that part of Sussex also harbors some quite pagan ritual. Um, mm. There's a big Guy Fawkes night done in a very pagan way. A big burning of a boat happens down on some salt plains there. Um, and there are big May Day festivals, which are kind of pre-Christian um may time spring celebrations where people dress up as green trees and paint their faces with leaves so it was a quite potent combination of sort of fire festival spring festival and a lot of countryside we would go and you know on lots of walks around the countryside surrounding this small town and a lot of beach time and um read books from the library we did a lot of making things we made a lot of gifts you know, we would never really buy presents. We would make them. Mm-hmm. We would buy things in jumble sales. You know, we didn't have a ton of money and we didn't travel. We only went to our grandparents' house. I think I left England twice. Once when I was 11 on a wind band trip with my clarinet on a boat to Holland. And once when I was, you know, about about 10 on a day trip to France. And that was it. I didn't get on an airplane till I was 16 when I met a boyfriend who took me on one never with my family. Um, And, you know, there was no TV. TV started at four in the afternoon. There were children's programs. The TV didn't exist before then. Um, There certainly was no internet. So there was a lot of going around the house in the summer holidays saying, we're bored. What can we do? And of course, our parents saying, well, if you're bored it's because you're boring so think of something to do and we did we concocted (laughs) things they they knew the pet shop boys song before they wrote it they we concocted things we would make stuff out of cardboard boxes amuse ourselves you know um had to had to use our imagination a lot
1: and you know when you went off to university you studied literature first and i'm wondering like did you read a lot uh when you got bored were you like a, a bookworm
0: I I was less – my sister was a big reader. I was – I would always borrow the same book from the library. I would renew it each week. She would be plowing through fiction, whereas I would keep borrowing the same books. And they were books of sort of how to make things. So they were like, you know, Giles Brandreth's Guide to Making Optical Illusions or how to make, you know, the most complicated run for your hamster and gerbil or something. So my books were always the ones that had dotted lines and pairs of scissors on them. And because I wasn't allowed to cut up the library book, I would trace over them and cut it up myself. Um, I started reading, obviously, a lot more when I, when I was in the sixth form at school. We had a very um, impressive English teacher, um, very impressioning, I should say. Um, and we learned a lot. We really started reading then, I would say. I did. And then I went to college and, and read intensely for three years then.
1: And at some point, you shifted to, to theatre design uh in 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 your studies and what spurred that and how did that happen
0: i think it was um people's frustration at me not fitting in a bit in that i was i'd done my three years studying english literature while i was studying i was painting a lot um mainly the walls of my rented apartment which didn't go down very well
1: where was the apartment?
0: It was in Bristol where okay. I lived and I ripped up the carpets and painted the mm-hmm. floors, painted the walls. I thought the landlord would be happy, but <laughs> I had to paint over it all at vast expense when I left. Um, then um, I went and studied fine art foundation course, which is what most people do when they're 18. So I went as a mature student at 21 and started to paint. It was a beautiful course at Central St. Martin's. It's a diagnostic course for young kids, really, to find out where you fit. And I did the diagnostic course, like a week of photography, a week of fashion, a week of theatre, a week of painting, lots of life drawing. And by the end, the last term, you're meant to kind of set on what you want to do. But I was still doing everything. And the teachers there said, you really should look at theatre design because you love text, you love music, you love art all of these things could coalesce. And I said, well, that's cool, but I don't really like the theatre. I get really bored. I find it a bit embarrassing. You know, I've been to the pantomime and I've been to some very cool Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals, but I didn't really think that would be my interest. I was kind of, my boyfriend was a record producer. I was into music. I just thought theatre wasn't very cool, to be honest. At that time, in the mid-90s, I was into art, I was into music. But I went and visited this course I had oddly I had accepted a place to do another three-year degree because that's what the foundation course does it sets you up to do a degree so I was all set to do another three years it was going to be in photography and printmaking and there was this beautiful white studio and really the way it works on an art degree is what did then is it's less prescriptive you would just go in and form the architecture of your day and of your practice and when I visited the other course I'd been recommended, it was a one-year postgrad in set design. And I felt immediately at home. It was a red room, not white. It was red. It was really messy, full of stuff. It was full of 10 students who seemed to me like they were sleeping there. They were definitely eating pot noodles. I definitely saw a mouse. It was somewhat <laughs> feral slightly funky in its aroma and they were listening to opera they were reading they were putting pictures all over the wall making little model theaters and the lady in charge alison chitty had just made a film with mike lee called naked which was an extraordinary film as well as doing opera and i thought okay there's a lot going on in this room it's not what i thought theater was it's film it's art it's music um, and I think we can maybe make theatre what we want it to be. It felt collective. It felt like a community. Um, and it was where I wanted to be then and where I have been very happy for 30 years. You know, pretty much in versions of that room. really.
1: And, you know, uh, in an article that I read uh, about your career, it, it basically encapsulated um, you and essentially saying that you elevated stage design from a supporting actor to a lead role, which I think is a... a Obviously a, a lovely compliment, but I was wondering like in school and right after school in theater design, can you paint a picture for what design and theater design and sonography meant to you? Like what was the, what was that sort of outlook like? What was that kind of field like at the time and how, what you, what you thought of it?
0: It was interesting because the only experience I had was the pantomime which we still go to every year with my mom. Um, and the pantomime was obviously, you know, same as it is now, kind of magical, you know, simple and magical. And then we would go occasionally to see West End musicals in the 90s and the late 80s. And they were generally directed by Trevor Nunn, um, written by Andrew Lloyd Webber, designed by um, John Napier, um, And these are now three people I I know and I admire and they've become my friends, but um, they were, it was actually a kind of a real flowering of that strand of musical theater. So, you know, Jesus Christ, Superstar, Joseph and his amazing Technicolor, Dreamcoat, Song and Dance, um, Cats, Starlight Express, all of those things were happening. So we saw all of those. And that was for us a real excitement because We didn't come to London that often. We had godparents who could afford the tickets, who would buy the tickets for us and bring us up on the train. We would stay in their apartment in London, which was very exciting for us coming from the country and, and, you know, a small town. And so there was a real flourishing of, and I think John Napier is a real artist and he was probably a big influence on me. He played a lot. The, The set design for Cats was a giant trash yard seen from the scale of a cat so it was like a giant yogurt pot a huge cornflakes packet or something so it it was really magical um so there was that element and then beyond that there was you know we didn't see much I didn't see much um and by the time I emerged from training in the mid 90s there was another strand just beginning um I guess of British theatre design—a lot of it was quite—it um, was quite filmic, I might say. You know, it, it was quite an—you would walk in, and there'd be quite a naturalistic environment. You know, it would be what had been written in the text. There'd be a room with a door or whatever. Um, and actually, some some of the very exciting things were happening in Europe and in German theatre. And you know, the German government has massively supported the arts. So regional theatres and opera ca- houses in Germany and around Europe, have been really well supported financially and they have a real following even with young people. So you might find a, a British opera audience might be generally quite old, certainly at that time, whereas you'd go to the opera in Dresden or somewhere and it would be a load of teenagers going. Um, it was much cheaper to go as well. So I think some British set, set designers, particularly in opera, had started to go and work in Europe and had brought the ideas back. So there was a really exciting amount of work going on it was called the powerhouse years at the english national opera and we used to visit that my mum would take me um as i got a bit older and i was studying theater design in my late teens as well she would take me and my sister to see the opera and she could afford if she bought a group ticket and she bought the whole season she could afford the front row of the gods they were like five pounds each and that we didn't always understand the opera but we loved that Going those. And that's where we saw designers like Nigel Lowry and Tom Cairns. Um, Alison Chitty was working there, my teacher, um, and uh, Ralph Koltai, a, a bunch of really extraordinary designers um, who were, you know, working in Europe and p- picking up those ideas of de- designer directors like Ruth Berkhaus, Eric Vonder. It was a whole kind of strand of design. Um, and they were beginning actually in Europe to attribute the designs. Talking about the hierarchy, there was a few where it would just list the names and not present a hierarchy. It was just conductor, director, designer listed, uh, choreographer listed, um, and that was that was that felt very inspiring and positive at the time. So you could find it, you could really find role models, but equally, if you didn't knock on the right door, you could sit in a lot of theatre design that was. Um, less extraordinary. And also the way we were taught at Motley, the particular teachers we had was sort of reacting against the big Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals. They were sort of saying, oh, you know, they were very much of the mind that the text was in charge and that the design should very much serve the text, which is, of course, my firm belief as well. But I think I had a suspicion that one could express and serve and frame and hold the text and still be be true to one's own sense of wanting to make a work of art that expressed your own batch of poems as well. That's what I began to intuit.
1: Before we return to the program, a word from our sponsor, Lumens. As a design editor and magazine veteran for decades, I can remember keeping so many lists. Where to buy lighting, where to buy great furniture, rugs, accessories, pillows, vases, you name it. Just keeping track of where to get access to the best design houses online was a job unto itself. But today, homeowners and designers have access to Lumens.com, a source for more than 400 global brands, all in one place. What started as an insider's go-to source for lighting has emerged as an encyclopedic powerhouse of good design, celebrating its 20th anniversary, offering nearly everything an architect, designer, or aficionado could require from iconic names like B&B Italia and Floss, to Carl Hansen and Nani Martina. The career of S. Devlin, as you'll learn on today's episode, is really about imagination and raw theatricality. And it's also about the human touch in design, from how her student paintings inspire her to this day, as do her collaborations with artists and craftsmen. And today, you can't have a home that's totally devoid of designs with this human element. And on Lumens.com, you can find a lot of that in their massive assortment of hundreds of brands. If you shop by the avant-garde style on their site, you'll find works that celebrate the human touch found in great design. For example, the rugs and tapestries from Nani Marquina by Spanish artist and designer Jaime Hayon bring whimsy to any interior. Or you might be fascinated by the famous wooden dolls by Alexander Girard made by Vitra. And nothing draws the eye like the Michael Graves tea kettle from Alessi. In all, just remember that sometimes in design, form does outshine function. Start your journey of inspiration today at lumens.com. That's L-U-M-E-N-S s.com. And, you know, you, you worked... Uh, in theater, mostly until a, a British band called Wire asked you to create a set, and it—you know—it seemed to mark a turning point in your career. And I'm kind of wondering how did that happen, and if you could paint a little picture for what that production was like.
0: It's funny how it happened. Often in the book, I actually mentioned that this interweaving of what was going on in technology versus what was going on in my practice and they have sort of interwoven those two parallel stories in a way in that in 2003, the first camera phone came out. It was the catchily entitled Nokia 7350 or something and it was the first phone, a little slidey phone with a camera and it was also a very early piece of experiential marketing or sort of branded content. and. Uh, a magazine that's now defunct that was called The Independent on Sunday. was a rather nice Sunday newspaper with a magazine. Um, They were doing an early piece of kind of branded content where Nokia and Orange, who were a phone provider at the time, had clearly paid for a magazine. And it looked like a normal Sunday supplement magazine, but clearly every advert in it was for this phone with the Orange phone supplier and the Nokia phone. And as the content, none of us knew the word content back then, by the way, but, but looking at back at it, it surely was content. They had invited myself and various other a young architects, um, a young pop star, uh, uh, Tyler Brulé from Wallpaper Magazine, a whole bunch of people who were considered up and coming, had been given this phone for the weekend and told to take photographs with it. And there would be an article on each of our practices with photographs of our work and the photograph we'd taken on the phone. And it was a way of of demonstrating how great this phone was going to be for people in the arts. Mm. And the adverts for the mobile phone are hilarious because it shows how much we always view the new technology through the lens of the old technology, like a horseless carriage. So all of those adverts were pictures of people's faces holding the camera phone going, oh, wow, now you can see that she's really happy. Now you can see that he's not really in the pub. And now you can see that she has gone to bed. It was just like all of these visual tricks seen through the lens of a gadget All of us only conceived as something audio. It was very interesting. Anyway, that magazine happened to land in the lap of a man called Paul Smith, who was the manager of a band called Wire. He took one look at it and thought that could be interesting. He showed it to a man called Alex Poots, who had already seen some of my theatre work uh, and was running a festival called Only Connect at the Barbican. They were cooking up a performance with Wire. So they contacted me. And the agent I had at the time was a classical theatrical agent. She didn't really know what to make of this. So she sort of batted it off and I never saw it. Then some weeks later, I get an email direct to me. And this is the time when you couldn't just pick up email. You had to go to an internet cafe to get your email. I was doing a, a dance piece in Sweden and I was in an internet cafe. And this person says, are you sure you can't do this thing? We really want you to do it. I'm like, who are you? What is this? I don't know anything about this. And, oh, let me explain it to you, da de, da I'm in Stockholm at the moment, so I can't, um, you know, come over. But when, are you, when, when can I come and visit? And I said, well, funnily enough, I'm in Stockholm. And it turned out that this manager and the band were about to play in the bar next door to the Internet Cafe. So I said, okay, well, this is too fortuitous to overlook. So I went, listened to the band play, and then did that show. And then, of course, it goes on because... My friend then said, I'll make you a website. And the only thing I really had to put on it, I had a few things to put on it, but one of the few things was this picture of these four boxes of this band wire. And a few weeks later, Kanye was firing his set designer and a friend of mine happened to be in the vicinity and said, look at this website. And Kanye said, oh, I'd like to do something like that. So that chain of events led pretty much to, to very much of the work that followed actually
1: and you know that shift of going from uh, having an agent who deals mostly with you know traditional theater and opera and then moving into you know music and fashion and runway and and all of that uh, was that a challenge was that shift a challenge for you would you remember that as the time when you kind of w- did it feel natural to you or did it feel like you know were you nervous was it
0: I think I was I think I was quite ready because I think by 2000s when this was happening I had been doing theatre I'd sort of started um, in 1997 and I had been fortunate in that things had moved quite quickly I'd started working at the National Theatre quite quickly I was working when I look back now doing the book at the pace of work it was kind of shocking because I didn't have much assistance and I was running around Um, so I did a lot of work very quickly from 97 96 until this 2003 moment And I was just beginning to start doing opera in 2003. And to be honest with you, I think when I go through actually the archive, the chunk of work that I include least from is that period from sort of 2000 to 2003. Some of the things I did were interesting, but I'd say some of them, I was very much, people were asking me to do things because I had done interesting work, but I wasn't probably always working with the right theatre directors I was working with some who probably didn't want really what I did and I was trying to perhaps be the kind of set designer who who could deliver a sort of doors and windows environment which there are many other people who do so much better than I do that kind of beautiful observational recreation of a place which is a skill a real skill in itself and it's not to be honest not something I, I would say that I've ever um devoted myself enough to to be really great at so um I guess I was, I don't think the work I was doing, it was beginning to become a little bit, um, I guess, repetitive, I guess, or, or just, I don't know. I probably wasn't in the right kind of collaboration. So it actually felt really exciting to step into territory I didn't understand. Um, and I do think actually the the work that I made and that lots of people make that I know when they're somewhat destabilized from sets of rules is often some of their most interesting work. And I think that was true in my case, that I it, the work was interesting because I didn't know the rules and I was questioning.
1: What, what were some of the rules that you kind of questioned? In that, well, when it first, came I to... I would a, say post yeah. post-Kanye moment.
0: Yeah, I mean, actually when I first set foot in theatre, you know, I, I didn't quite understand that you were meant to follow the stage directions or that you were meant to... You know, illustrate in any way. It seemed natural to me that you would offer uh, a counterpoint. It would seem to me a little bit. I felt it was a bit uh, condescending towards an audience to assume that they needed illustration at any point. Uh, I, I thought that you could probably give them fewer cues and that they would be um, able to paint the picture themselves. So, I, I already in theatre had begun to trust the architecture that the human imagination in the audience would collectively create, I think, looking at it in retrospect. And then when I got to pop, I had seen a lot of pop music uh, or mu- live music, rock music as well, because my partner at the time was, he had he had been a record engineer, a sound engineer and a record producer. And at the time, he was going through a stint of being an AR person, an artist and repertoire person. So he would go, we, we would go to like three gigs a night. And we would turn up and he would sometimes, if he didn't think the band was going to be much good, he'd keep the cab waiting and say, I've just got to check out this band. I know they're going to be rubbish. I've heard the demo, but I've got to check it out. So we would go to a lot of gigs. So I saw a lot of music and I began, and I sat in the studio a lot because I was young. I mean, I was going out with this guy from 16 to 28. So I would sit for hours. He'd work in the studio all night. I'd just come and have my dinner, sit in the studio, just listen, take it in, observe how music is what is happening when people are making music and you know it is one of the most challenging areas in which i practice the music area because so much of it is about it's a it's a very young art form and i think you know it only really began the transmission of live music to a large audience really with the beatles you might say um in shea stadium and i think it happened because music reached an audience through the tv which was as you You know, you can imagine just beginning to become very popular in the 50s and 60s. So that intimacy that an audience could feel with a performer on the TV when they bought a ticket to a concert, they'd buy a ticket to that. So how do you translate what they can get from the TV? And it was the same in the 80s with MTV. You know, there was all this investment in music videos in MTV, the first music television and, and bands, you know, were making, you know, there was a lot of money in the music industry from selling the records. There was a lot of money being made and it was getting poured into these incredibly expensive videos. So if you could access that on your TV, what were you going to get when you went to the concert? Um, and I guess the, the difficulty with a concert, of course, is what's really happening is a load of gear and a load of men up ladders putting gear up that's what's really happened so if you if you walk into an arena or a stadium what you can really smell is just the evaporating sweat of 300 men putting up the gear you know that that's it's not really a church of incense that's what that's what's really just happened and that's the nature of the economy of of you know the touring music industry And it does feel quite industrialized. And I guess that's what I picked up when I walked into it and what probably Kanye picked up and what he probably didn't like about it was the industrial aspect. It felt more about gear, truss, lights, mechanics, industry. And we we know all those things are necessary from Shea Stadium when the Beatles didn't have them because they weren't, their sound wasn't augmented enough. Their visual wasn't augmented enough. And so they were not actually safe was a matter of sort of safety. There was all these screaming people frustrated because they bought their ticket and they couldn't see or hear what they'd come to see and there wasn't safety. So that's only 60 years ago. If you think operas had hundreds of years to develop and theatre started with the Greeks. So, you know, big touring music and that industrial scale is quite young. And I guess um, what we did with Kanye at that time Um, Together and then with other artists ever since has been to question and to try to mitigate, to sort of find antidotes to the industrial reality of what's actually happening. And how do you bring, you know, a lot of the artists I was working with and I still work with, their visual worlds are informed by art that they buy, art galleries they visit, houses and architects they work with. So they have this very you know, they have access to these very refined aesthetics and they spend, invest a lot of their own funds on these shows. And yet the aesthetic they're met with is very different and they want to know why. Um, so so, so that's really been the story of my practice within within live music. And it's still very dissatisfying because still the truth is, although we've come a long way in terms of, the power that we use for the lights we use led instead of tungsten so that's dramatically reduced the weight of the lights and the power i think the weight of all the sound equipment has massively reduced um the video equipment has massively uh, reduced in how much power it draws and how heavy it is how many trucks it uses i think there's still a huge amount of work being done on how we electrify the trucks how we minimize them um and how we can you know bring the aesthetic um, that You know, artists, most of the musicians I work with, I would say, are visual artists as well. They tend to be synesthetic. They tend to see music. There's very few that I work with that don't see and have a very clear visual correlative to the
1: music that they make. Do you look around your home and wonder, where am I going to put everything? The Grand Tourist certainly does. My collection of lucky Japanese cats, my four dozen brooches of varying levels of flair not to mention my extensive collection of vintage magazines and other baubles collected from a lifetime of little grand tours around the world. If you find yourself in such a dilemma, California Closets can help. Their design experts will collaborate with you to create a custom storage solution based on your needs, your aesthetic, and your budget. So whether you're looking for a harder-working closet, storage for your collectibles, or a multi-purpose studio, California Closets knows how to make room for what belongs. Plus, it's easy to get started. First, schedule a free design consultation, and their designer will talk about your needs, measure your space, and create a 3D rendering that shows you the best way to optimize functionality. They'll work with you to refine the design until it's exactly what you want. And after building it, they'll install it with their own team of professionals. After all, the grand tourist knows many things, but how to use a hammer and nail not so much. Think of it as practical magic. A series of spells even a podcaster with 20 years of experience could never cast on his own. Learn more at californiaclosets.com. And, you know, it must take a kind of a, an army to, to create many of your designs, obviously depending on the scale. And and can you describe to the listener, you know, how your own studio is set up today? What is that kind of working cadence like?
0: Yeah, um, we have, you know, a fluctuating number between sort of six and eight full-time designers who work with me in the studio. It's in my front room at the moment. Um, we do have another studio that I've just acquired, um, which we will be moving out to um, quite soon. Um, The reason it's been in my front room is because I'm a mother. I have two children, 16 and 13. We used to have the studio outside the house. I found I just didn't go very often to the studio. Because I have these two children, I found I was often at home, in and out of meetings, and I wouldn't get to the studio because between children and meetings and travel. So we decided it was better to have the studio at home. And it's worked quite well up till now. But Right now, actually, since I've been making the book and really over the past um, seven years of starting to make my own studio practice, uh, William Kentridge is one of my big mentors and he came to visit. I had visited his beautiful studio in Johannesburg. He came to visit my studio and he said, look, this is all great, but you are going to need a room where no one else is. Um, So therefore, we've just acquired a new place for all the studio to go so I can have my room where I can go in without a kind of planned outcome um you know and just walk in and be uninterrupted just in dreaming stuff up because I really at this point having done the book that's sort of you know I'll probably still continue making work that's in that vein there might be another volume but I think it's a bit of a round up of this exploration and now I want to see what happens when I'm not commissioned in such a Um, clear way with the primary text. What happens if I just sit in my room and see what I come up with? It might be nothing. It might be rubbish, but I want to try, you know.
1: And of course, you know, you still do opera and work with opera and more traditional venues for set design. And I would love to speak about a specific work um, like Don Giovanni in 2014 that you did for the Royal Opera House where you kind of created this rotating Structure like a little building uh, where you sort of projected sketches onto it, like a kind of it was like a a living journal of sorts. Can you tell me how this specific piece came about, and and how you feel about sort of reinventing the wheel for things like opera or Shakespeare, where things have just been told and retold and retold and retold and restaged so many times.
0: It's interesting that you mentioned Don Giovanni because actually it's just been on in L.A. Um, at the um LA Opera just uh, last month. And I was so busy running around, I didn't even have a chance to get there or to talk about it or post about it, which I should have done. Um And it's going to go to Houston and I think to Toronto. It's about to have a moment, mm. that piece. So look out for it. But yeah, that was um a big collaboration with my video designer colleague, Luke Halls, who I've worked with for nearly 18 years now. And he and I work really closely together Um, and really with Don Giovanni, um, it's an opera that really benefits from having been done a few times. I had, it's now the third time I've worked on it. The second time I've fully staged it. And you, the thing about opera is you really have to devote time to listening to it (laughs) and learning it, you know, um, you need to sit. You, there's no real other way to learn an opera than just being in it, watching videos of it or going to productions that you have to experience. It. You can't have any opinion about it unless you've immersed yourself. And the first time I did it, I would say I thought it was more about hell and enlightenment and big kind of sweeping ideas. And the director, Keith Warner, very brilliantly said to me, look, this is all great, but I can't really stage the piece and these ideas I need you know practical things like there's a whole scene where people are looking for each other in the dark and hiding under things and you know there's there's often that dichotomy in opera or that kind of paradox where you know you're dealing with huge big philosophical questions but the stage directions really do go on and on and not just the stage directions but Libretto. Oh, I can't find him. Maybe he's over here. And it becomes quite annoying for an audience when somebody's saying, Where are you? Where are you? When the people can clearly bloody see each other on the stage. It's a little pedantic. But so we staged it the first time in a hotel, which worked really well with sort of corridors and doorways mm-hmm. and sort of a hierarchical class system that you could really use to express the hierarchies that it was challenging uh, in some of its setups. And then the second time, um, with the director, Casper Holton, we really started by trying to say, well, what what's hell? In the first edition, hell was um, infinite ageing. Uh, and in the second edition, it was infinite life, but infinite ageing. So sort of Dorian Gray kind of inversion. And in this version, it was solitude to be alone. Mm-hmm. That was w- what we decided to be unable to Communicate or to share or to be in communion, to be stuck alone, that would be hell. So, therefore, to set that up, we made what was a whole living world out of Don Giovanni's notebook. It was his list. There's a famous libretto, which is the list of every woman he's ever slept with. Um, And the world was his list of, you know, meetings and um, connections and communions and love affairs. And you could see this was his you know, um, absolute, uh, ecstasy of co- communication, constantly communicating with women, um, living always in relation, um, always busy in relation to everything. Um, and that hell would be the abstraction of that. So it became this churning three dimensionalized list. Everybody got embroiled in his list.
1: Oh, and you know, um, a lot of your work includes, some of your work, I should say, um, in recent years includes AI. And you worked in this project called Poem Portraits um, that I believe you sort of conceived with the curator Hans Obrist. And I was wondering what your take is on AI and the creative world. You know, what is your outlook on on utilizing AI and and sort of generative quality of of sometimes visuals now there's a big piece up at MoMA that is sort of computer self-generated in a, the in, in, yeah and you know and sometimes it's just words uh I know mm. I know some architects that have confided in me they're like yeah we do a proposal now we just sort of we mm. just sort of ask AI to write some of the copy we don't use writers anymore you know and mm. things like that um what is your sort of take on all of this because obviously you've used it to great effect and and in ways that were quite you know appreciated and lauded and all of that
0: I mean, I think before I have opinions, I really try and inform myself. Mm. So I've been working with AI since 2016. Um, Firstly, with the Poem Portraits project with Hans Ulrich, which came about because he asked me to design a party. I was like, I don't do parties. I don't know what this party business is. And you have to pay for the party? That seems really weird. Why would you invite people to the Serpentine and tell them to pay? And they explained, I said, no, it's good because we raise money. It's a gala. It means that... You know, art gallery can be free for the rest of the year this is a good thing I was like okay I was like okay well it, it seems it, it sits weirdly with me that you would ask people to pay to come for a party so if you're going to ask them to donate I think you should dignify that request by asking people to donate a word as well mm. to a collective poem and that they would all partake in it and they could have it so it felt more fair that's hmm. what I thought. So, and I guess I was intuitively picking up on the first piece I ever saw at the Serpent Time, which was the great Felix Gonzalez Torres piece, uh, The Pile of Silver Sweets. And his, you know, approach in 2000 to the art was take the art, take the sweets. And it was piles of prints, just take them, which was extraordinary hmm. at the end of the 90s to say, take the
1: art. Oh, sure. Now now they have piles in museums and no one takes them. (laughs) Right? Yeah. So
0: so we made that work and I didn't know anything about how to do it. I just said, I want to make a collective poem. Can I make a poem where everybody gives a word? And there was already a collaboration with Google Arts and Culture. And they said, oh yes, we've got someone already working on a poetry algorithm. And then that evolved through several projects finally into the UK Pavilion at Mm -hmm. the World Expo. And for that, we used, it's a 22 meter high building whose entire facade was made of words and it wrote a poem. It could have written one every second, but we couldn't read it that fast. So we slowed it down Mm. and said, please just produce a new poem every 90 seconds because the humans can't keep up. Um, And we were using for that iteration, an early version of chat GPT two back in 2019. So we were already on all that stuff. And we're now updating actually into barred into the latest Google algorithms. Um, so I guess my instinct from an early uh, encounter was to have a kind of respect for more than human intelligence. Um, like I have a respect for mathematics and I don't think humans invented mathematics. I think they discovered it. Yeah. You know, I think I think mathematics is clearly, you know, I read a book called Chaos by James Gleick, um, which describes the maths that governs the way our arteries divide Mm. in our veins. And of course, it's the same maths that governs the way that branches divide on a tree or that rivulets of water divide when they're falling down your window screen or that the way the stock market fluctuates or the way that sheep distribute themselves. There's the same maths. So I think humans discover more than human intelligences like maths. Um, I think there's so much intelligence that's more than human that we just haven't even looked at. Like, what about the 10,000 creatures inside your body and my body? But we don't even know their design. We don't know how they work. We don't know how our brain works. So the idea of an inscrutable to us more than human intelligence seems to me to wildly predate AI. Mm. And it's been around us all the time. So I've had an instinct about AI as I do about maths to you know try and learn, to try and respect it, to have hopefully a, you know, a kind of um, appropriate fear of it um, and respect for it. Um, but, But to recognize that it's not brand new to have more than human intelligence, that we've been perhaps midwife to. That's probably the relationship between humans to AI. And then I, to further sort of substantiate my hunch, I read and I read the latest book, I would say on AI that I felt was very useful called um, the Coming Wave mm-hmm. by Mustafa Suleiman, who was at Google, was a co-founder of DeepMind. Interestingly, started in climate and working for the mayor's office in London, but became a bit disillusioned with how slow the climate protocols were moving. So shifted to tech, invented DeepMind with Demis Hassabis, and now has his own AI company and has written this book, which is somewhat of a warning. About what's about to hit us, mm. he calls it the coming wave. He talks about the congruence of the advances in quantum computing, meaning much faster computing, and the advances in AI, mm. um, and how we, you know, this is this is going to make the information revolutions we've experienced so far feel like nothing. You know, this is this is huge, and, and you know, really inviting governments to really think about containment, to prepare, to plan. When I spoke recently at COGX, a big, um, you know, AI uh, gathering, a conference, a lot of people came up to me afterwards and said, look, we're making these brain chips, you really need to be afraid, there will be no more graphic designers, there'll be no more this. So I have to listen to those who are much more deeply immersed in it than I am. But at the same time, my my sense is that as artists, the best thing we can do at the moment is to work with. Um, I have had a go at Midjourney and various of those generative um so far um they're a bit like when we first had that phone with the camera and we didn't know what to do with it we just so oh, this is kind of crap this is a gimmick we didn't get it we didn't see the world changing when that little nokia phone mm. and i say that a little bit f- is how it feels with the range of ability in that i can already see i can see tom saraceno's work in the in mid-journey i can see all of license work i can see a bunch of i can pick out my friend's work In little fragments Mm. that have been collaged together so in a way it feels like a sort of high speed version of what students and people have been doing for a number of years since pinterest which is just sort of standing on the shoulders of other artists to greater and lesser degrees of you know integrity success failure beauty um it's more tools i mean what i would say when people say are you scared is well i'm also scared of different technology i'm scared of a newspaper Mm. you know if you think about the fact that our newspapers are owned by very few people um, and our elections are governed by what people read in those newspapers, in in Britain certainly, and I think the same is true in America. So, technology as simple as print on paper, newspaper online newspapers can also be very dangerous. Um, interestingly, Mustafa Silliman says we call it AI, we call it artificial intelligence until it works. And once it works, we just call it technology. <laughs> so I don't know. Um, I'm I'm I've proven myself of being very bad at predicting things. So I'll take Mustafa Silliman's word for it that this is gonna change everything. Um, and we just need to be very alert and as creative as possible and as imaginative as possible and respectful, I would say.
1: And, you know, with this show at the Cooper Hewitt, I was wondering, you know, you've you've had such a body of work and, you know, as you're as people leave the exhibition, what do you want them to kind of take away from it, in terms of their understanding of who you are as an artist?
0: Well, when they arrive at the Cooper Hewitt um, Smithsonian Design Museum, they will have hopefully you know wandered through the park, or they've just come up from one block down, which is the Guggenheim. Maybe they'll put this on the map. Maybe they already know this, you know, America's Design Museum, or maybe maybe they don't know it. Maybe they've not they've been there before. And when they arrive, um, you know, they walk in. It's this beautiful mansion. It was Carnegie's mansion. And it's a very interesting building to research in itself. Um, And they'll come up to the top floor. And it's a little bit like being the madwoman in the attic (laughs) a bit in that we've totally taken over the top floor. Um, And you get to the top floor and you will be invited into my studio. So I've made a replica of my London studio up there on the top floor in the attic. And you'll be invited in in groups, um, a little bit like uh, the Super Blue piece in Miami. um, And when you walk in, um, the door will close behind you. Hopefully, you'll sit down around my desk. There's all the objects as if I've just left the room, as if me and my studio have just left, left the room. And you'll sit where we would be sitting in a sort of punch drunk, Felix Barrett, wonderful punch drunk theater kind of way. And gradually there are a series of books on the table and sketchbooks and they'll start to turn the pages start to turn um my handwriting starts to appear on the pages and objects come to life on the table the studio comes to life and you hear my voice and I say I've always drawn on my books I've always made a map of my reading so I can find my way back when I look again and I tell you a story as if it was me sitting with you in the studio and hopefully in that introduction it's just a two minute two and a half minute piece but it'll be enough hopefully if you know nothing about my practice if you're just walking off the street or if you know a little bit or if you're a kid you don't know anything about set design or me or anything hopefully in that first two and a half minutes you'll be introduced Um, and then there's a a line that I draw on the wall uh, and my hands are very big at that and I split the wall apart and you'll be invited into the exhibition and from there it's really conjuring the book it's it's there's a reason why the book and the exhibition have got the same name and actually a record I've just made an LP and it's all the same name um and when you come in the first thing you'll feel is that you're in the book because those irises that you'll see at the beginning of the book which are a kind of invocation of the names of everyone who's ever collaborated with me so the names of the engineers, the seamstresses, the prop makers, the choreographers, the video designers, the directors, the writers, the musicians, they're all there. Um, so that's the first thing you see. And you can place yourself at the end of it and within it and be photographed within it. So I hopefully that's a way of entering the book. Then as you walk around, you'll see all of those early objects that are in the book, those early sketches. Some of them I made when I was like 15, 16, 17 years old um they are displayed as if you'd walked into my archive storage so the way that andrea the curator and julie described arriving in the archive and unearthing all these objects you'll be in that place and you'll find all the objects stacked coming out of boxes so first you see that then you'll enter a series of rooms that present um sketches models miniatures it's a small it's a it's a big space, but it's a low ceiling, so leaning into that, I've made it a kind of flow of miniatures there are, i think forty five scale models of works, some of them are rotating projection map they're all illuminated um and then there are glass boxes full of flurries of drawings um of collaborations over the years, so with Abel Tefey from the weekend. There's a row of sketches made since we first met in 2016, all the way till now, and the same with Adele, the same with Beyonce, um, the, the same with you two. The paintings that were made that led to the Sphere piece and to their tours. So it's a lot of uh, process work, work made that I've made, um, and then finally the work culminates with um, a series of films that you can sit and watch that really bring to life um the works those kind of final pages of the book where you see those images um in black and white and then in color forms and colors they're expressed in two film rooms and finally there's a reading room which is parallel to my studio but in this case you're invited to sit and draw on the text yourself uh and join in with all the reading, so I've put every book in there that I've ever read, really, or as many as I can fit, but all the significant books. So there's an invitation to you to stand on the shoulders of my research and to carry on. And there'll be a lot of programming going on as well, a lot of interfacing. One of the walls of the studio will regularly open up to a camera in my studio in London so that students and groups can apply and say, look, we'd like to have a masterclass or we'd like to have an interaction so if you're listening to this and you're a teacher or you have kids at school that perhaps wouldn't normally come up to the museum um, or want to discover this and want to get more involved, then contact the Cooper Hewitt um, Smithsonian Design Museum now and those who are programming will try and work you into this program. It's on for a long time, the exhibition. It's on till August um, the 15th, 2024, from November the 17th this year, or November the 18th, the public opening. So. There'll be time, I hope, for me to really connect. And of course, I really want to connect with communities who might not be well represented in set design. You know, it's quite a white community, I would say, at the moment, stage designers. It's getting much more broad now. But I really want to meet people who don't fit that demographic. I really want to be part of shifting the demographic. And something that's happening in London is the training I had at the Motley Theatre Design Course That course closed some years ago and we've just reopened it and it's called the Genesis Theatre Design Course and it is only for um, applicants from low-income and global-majority backgrounds. So we're really, I'm on the board of that, I'm teaching on it. I just took the kids to see Abel Tesfaye's show and took them backstage and all that. So they came to the book launch. So we're really actively trying to shift the demographic so that stage design really expresses the voices uh of everybody, which it must to, to remain relevant at all.
1: And I, I have uh one before I ask my last question I have to ask um before I'm I lose all of my my card carrying uh gay privileges. What is Beyonce like?
0: She's bionic. So in Stockholm we're finishing the rehearsal. We've started at eleven, we finish at three and me and fatima robinson who is the great choreographer she worked with me also on the super bowl with dr trey um me and fatima in the cab you know we're both 52 years old we're in our cab heading home and fatima gets a text from b saying right should we do notes (laughs) she's like no we're going to bed (laughs) she's bionic and she is an empath i mean it's true of most of the great artists i work with and they wouldn't be in that sort of high priest and high priestess role if they weren't empaths they she and the others equally they absorb and draw on the energy around them and the pain and then they have the power of an enzyme to transform the pain of themselves and others into art and then they dispense that art back out to help others empathize with it and it forms a virtuous circle Um, and, and that's why, you know, you're asking the question. That's why people are so intrigued is because it's kind of magic.
1: Wow. That's a a fantastic way of describing her. Um, and now for my last question, it might be a little bit macabre. It's it's definitely macabre. Um, (laughs) have you, have you ever thought about what you would like to request at your own funeral?
0: Oh, do you know, I don't think it's macabre. I'm really glad you asked that. Um, I think we live in a death phobic culture. And I think so many cultures other than Western contemporary civilization have been so much more at home with death than we are. And I think it's one of our problems in that we don't set our imagination to conjure um, plans for death. You know, we live life as if death doesn't exist and then suddenly we just fall off the cliff and suddenly get ill and die you know we if you think of any other culture who have a cult of death you know think of the mexican day of the dead think of any culture you care to mention who have death rights and you know even even our own culture until relatively recently open caskets was much more common than it is now you know we are death phobic and i think it's a big problem and by the way i think it will be very interesting as ai will undoubtedly become more prevalent it's my thought that AI will probably fetishize death because it'll be the one thing they can't do.
1: And what would you like to do?
0: Well, I think I've already done it. To be honest, I mean, making the book—that's <laughs> uh, that—I'm really glad I got that done before I died. Uh, I do dice with death regularly, seeing as like I go everywhere on a mo- on a on a bicycle um, and narrowly you know, snatch life from the jaws of death daily uh, with passing buses in London. But um, yeah, the book's been really important. The record that I've just made which is a limited edition vinyl LP of a combination of all of the voiceover works that I've made but I think yeah oh god I mean I think the 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 death rights um how to how to celebrate life at the moment of death you know how to celebrate the fact what, what is it there's that wonderful quote you'll remember who said it you know, it's a civil rights quote, so I'm misappropriating it completely or miscontextualizing it, but it said, they tried to bury us. They didn't realize we were seeds. So I think that celebration of the burying of me <laughs> uh, would be best expressed uh, in the celebration, hopefully, of the seeds of me. Uh, and I think that's true of every human. I'm just, You asked me to talk about my own death, so I said me. But I think it would be same of you and the same of anybody, is to understand that a burial is a planting of seeds.
1: Thank you to our guest, S. Devlin, as well as to Andrea Lips, and everyone at the Cooper Hewitt for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, don't forget to visit our website and sign up for our newsletter, The Grand Tourist Curator at thegrandtourist.net. And follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time.